This is Carpe Consensus. Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto. Hello and welcome to Carpe Consensus. I am Ben Schiller, Features Editor here at Coindesk, and joining me today is Cam Thompson. Hi, Cam. Hey, how's it going? And Danny Nelson, who is a business editor here. Hey, Danny. Hello. So we're only a week or we can change away from Consensus, which is our big festival down in Austin, Texas. And we're very excited about that. It's going to be a huge show with uh, every aspect of crypto represented there and some major themes at a climactic uh, inflection point for the industry. Looking forward to that. Are you looking forward to that, Danny? I am. You know, this is only going to be my second Consensus Fourth, really, but the first two that I went to for Coindesk were both virtual. I'm so much more excited for in-person. It's really a great opportunity to meet everyone in person and just have a big party talking about crypto. What what more could you ask for than a big crypto party with all the crypto people? Yeah, it's going to be a broad church, a good time and some serious stuff and hopefully some fun stuff too. Cam, what are you looking forward to? Yeah, so I've been going to a lot of conferences recently and I think that Having an event where there's such valuable programming and a lot of really important sessions, you know, there's such value in that and going to a conference. And, you know, I'm not naming names here. I'm not trying to throw shade at anyone, but I'm just saying it's really hard to pull together a really stacked lineup of speakers. And I think that Consensus really has that. You know, it has been this flagship crypto festival for many years now. So I'm just really looking forward to it. I had a great time last year hanging out with a lot of NFT people, my favorite kinds of people. Cam, you're coming fresh off the uh, the circuit here. Can you tell us for a second about your most recent venture into the crypto conference world? What venture? What would you like to know? Well, how was NFT NYC? Well, so just to, to, I guess, to start this off, I only went to the actual conference for a day, which was Friday. And the conference took place during three very uncharacteristically warm days for spring temperatures up in the 90s and all this heat. I mean, you just had to think that it had to mean something, right? Where was this heat really coming from? You know, was it the fact that ETH just passed 2K pretty recently? Was it the fact that NFT companies and collections coming together? No, it was really about drama. Drama was the center of this year's NFT NYC in the side events. A lot of things happened. Kim, was it you? Were you the drama? Was I the drama? No, I was just, um, you know, trying to get the tea, trying to get the dirt at all these little events. Yeah, it was definitely a time. It was exhausting, but it was insightful, I have to say, just connecting with a lot of people that I've sort of been on the conference circuit with for the past year, I guess, just, you know, see them every few months. Anyways, a lot of them will be at Consensus, which is cool. A lot of people were very excited about Consensus. So this is like the one rest week between the two big events. So trying to protect my peace, take a lot of vitamins. But, you know, I think that consensus will be really valuable in terms of programming. That's all I'll say. Yeah. I mean, the thing about consensus, and I, I'm not just sort of uh, tooting our own horn here, uh, it's the only broad church conference on the circuit. There's a lot of other good conferences out there that do, uh, you know, various aspects of crypto from particular projects, you know, Avalanche, Polkadot, they all have their own conferences. But this is the only one that really takes in the whole gamut of, of crypto from MFTs to central bank digital currencies to Bitcoin to Ethereum to all the protocols out there and all the sort of use cases and possibilities of crypto. So it's, it's the only place where you can have that kind of broader conversation. 
I'll talk about NFC NYC a little bit more in Cam's Corner, so make sure you stick around for that. Make sure if you haven't got your ticket yet, please get your ticket. I know I was shilling consensus all around NFT NYC, and some of you I was talking to said you were going to get your ticket. So if you're listening, please do. You have a week left. It's going to be a great time. Come down to Austin. Hang out with us. We're going to have a lot of fun. And, and specifically, if Cam told you that you should come, I would like you to reach out to me to use my referral code. So just wanted to make that clear. Oh my God, Danny, that is not chill. So, look, if you're not chilling your referral code, I'm going to show mine, okay? Someone's okay, got to do it. Okay, fine. You, you, you're allowed to. It's okay. All right, let's get to it. All right, we're going to get to our first segment now. That is Inside the Desk. And Danny's going to take it away. Danny? Absolutely. So, you know, what could be more wonderful in this world than the magical disappearing Shaquille O'Neal at seven feet and some some inches tall and over 500 pounds, I'm sure. You know, it's hard to miss Shaquille O'Neal. I saw his shoe once in a mall and I have to say I probably could have fit my whole head in it. That's how large this human is. And somehow no one was able to serve him with a lawsuit until this week. That's right. Shaquille O'Neal has been wrapped up in one of the many suits involving FTX for a while now, but the lawyers who are trying to sue him have had a problem, which is to say they can't actually formally inform him by serving him that he's been sued, which is kind of funny because he's on TV all the time, he's on TNT, he's on his commercials, he's selling Icy Hot, he's everywhere, but he's nowhere. So it was only recently, over the weekend, that lawyers were finally able to give Shaquille O'Neal his papers informing him that he's being sued. So Cam, I'll start with you. Like, what do you think of this? Um, well, I think that it's funny that lawyers were trying to reach him over social media. You know, I can't imagine a lawyer just dropping some comments or sliding into someone's DMs like, hey, we're trying to sue you. Like, you should you should pay attention. You know, it's going on. But also just this comes back to this bigger conversation about celebrities that were involved in promoting FTX, pumping this exchange when At the time, it seemed like it was one of the leading, most prominent, strong crypto exchanges out there with so much celebrity attention that ended up being fraudulent. And, you know, as we uncover more of these celebrities who were involved in pumping this company or had some type of sponsorship deal, it only get more interesting. And it just goes to show, you know, this industry is so early that a lot of people who were helping promote this, who might not have any real understanding what crypto is or not, are going to be sued. I think there's an even larger point here, which is that I think more than celebrities and more than the people behind FTX itself are responsible for FTX. I think in the whole sort of fallout from FTX has been a kind of scapegoating around Sam Bankman-Fried and his immediate circle when there were many, many people involved in building up this company and benefiting from this company who are not properly being uh, punished or or recognized for their failings. And that's my rather moralistic take on this. Well, we'll definitely be following Shaquille O'Neal and seeing where that case takes him. Ben, what's on your plate right now with Inside the Desk? What are you what are you pulling out of the filing cabinet? From Consensus Magazine, which is our internal digital magazine, we are releasing a new project today that we're calling Projects to Watch. And on the website, you can see profiles of 19 companies or organizations that we are featuring. It's really to look at the kind of long-held promises of crypto to fix various problems within the financial system and also in the world generally, and then to pick out companies or organizations that are actually facing up to that challenge. So uh, the kind of subtext here is that we feel as an organization, or certainly on our side of the house, that 
crypto has kind of spent a lot of time speculating and talking about meme coins and uh, a lot of kind of fluff and nonsense around making money and doing it in sometimes nefarious ways when there are actually these kind of hard problems in the world, particularly in the financial system that crypto is supposed to be solving. And, and that's what this package is really about, highlighting those companies or organizations that are really taking on those hard problems. So Ben, I'm looking at the list. I mean, I wrote one of these myself. I wrote, I wrote about Scroll, which is a ZK EVM, which I still don't fully understand. But anyway, their ZK EVM is up and coming. There are other names on this list that have been around for a while, like Stellar. How did you and how did this process come together to decide what the right mix was of projects that have been around for a while versus projects that their big thing is still to come? So the, the process started with actually identifying the problems. So we identified 10 big problems that we think crypto should solve or has the potential to solve or is claimed to solve. And then once we identified the problem, we, were, we went out and identified organizations that were taking on that problem. So Ben, I know that last week we asked this question to Jeff Roberts when he joined us to talk about the Fortune 40 crypto company list. But, you know, there's always pushback and, you know, it might be too soon. This list has only been published for a few hours. But I guess, you know, has there been any pushback so far, any feedback on the list? I wasn't responsible directly for this list that was put together by my colleague, Jeannie Kim. But uh, I think lists and rankings generally create a lot of heat and light. People are always annoyed when they're not included. And I think it's worth pointing out that this list is really is about celebrating what crypto can do. And it's by no means exhaustive. It's more representative. And what we're doing here is, is pointing out these problems and pointing to examples of organizations that we believe are taking on those problems. But we're not saying these are the only companies or organizations that are taking on these problems. They are just uh, illustrative of the problem and the solution that crypto can potentially provide. Thanks, Ben. And just a note on that for programming purposes. This is a 20-article package that covers the greatest hits of projects to watch, and about around half of them will be on the ground at Consensus. So definitely read some of our coverage on these companies and make sure to catch them at Consensus itself. All right, so today on the show, we've got everyone's favorite crypto podcaster, Bennett Tomlin, the co-host of Crypto Critics Corner, now, Bennett is, like me, very skeptical about the whole crypto industry, maybe a little bit more so given his uh, stance a little bit more on the outside of it than we are here at Coindesk. And Bennett, welcome to the show. We're really excited just to hear your perspective and talk about the news of the day in this wild world that we're all covering. Glad to be here. Cool. And so I think we'll, we should start off the conversation with the biggest news coming out this weekend which is to say that the U.S. House of Representatives has put forward a draft stablecoin bill, which represents one of the first potential big step forwards in legislating stablecoins in the U.S. Now, Bennett, you were spending some of your weekend, as we always do here in crypto media land, thinking way too much about work topics such as this. What's your big takeaway from this bill? What's interesting to me is I did not expect us to get a new stablecoin bill until after the 2024 election. After all the previous ones have gotten gummed up in committee or never had anywhere close to the votes they needed to really move forward, I didn't think that that part of the legislative agenda was going to come back up. And so it was interesting to see this bill, which seemed to draw heavily from earlier proposed stablecoin bills, being proposed apparently based on the memo that was filed with it with bipartisan support 
out of a GOP-led committee in the House right now. Now, Bennett, do you think that part of the reason why this is still on people's minds in D.C. is because you and I could book tickets right now for $290 to go to the Terra Club at the Washington Nationals ballpark? That's right. They're still calling it the Terra Club, this exclusive seating so area behind a home plate. It's called the Terra Club because there's a five-year deal. And they paid up front. <laughs> yeah, you got to pay up front. They paid up front and it's cash only. But that's all to say this massive collapse that really set off a domino effect that took out everything in crypto in 2022 is still very much in your face, as was unintentionally intended in D.C., Maybe not to be flippant, but how how much does do things like that matter in actually getting policymakers to take up these kinds of issues on a more expedited schedule than waiting for the next major election to pass? I'm not a policymaker. I'm not a legislator. I'm not sitting in on those meetings. But of better theirs. yet, you're a commentator from the outside, just like <laughs> us. <laughs> yes, punditry is at least as good as actually being there. Um, I think that broadly, the series of collapses from Terra to 3AC to Celsius to BlockFi to FTX has given a variety of regulators and lawmakers political cover to take action against cryptocurrency. I think most regulators and most lawmakers are predisposed towards inaction as a default, especially when there's ambiguity around a topic. A series of high-profile multi-billion dollar collapses that hurt a lot of people suddenly makes it stop looking so ambiguous. It makes it look like there is a lot more harm being done and lets the actors who have the strong opinions really start to act underneath that kind of cover. And so, yeah, I think pointing at that whole long series of collapses is really the only way to explain a bipartisan stablecoin bill being introduced at this point. Do you think there's a kind of a, a personal thing going on here with these lawmakers? I mean, basically, SPF was going around Washington for 18 months distributing uh, money that didn't belong to him to lawmakers, and then those lawmakers had to give the money back after the scandal broke. Uh, I mean, presumably, these lawmakers sort of take that personally, right? They were kind of duped or kind of forced into a corner, and, and uh, they reacted, and now they're kind of getting their own back. Yeah, so when like, news first broke out of Coindesk about the Alameda balance sheet, and then the next few days that caused a variety of other issues across the industry, there was a bunch of people who were saying that Sam Bankman-Fried's political giving was likely to give him cover and prevent him from being indicted or investigated. And that was a very common opinion during this period. I always had the opposite opinion. I thought that by making this series of donations and doing this, he basically meant that every single one of these legislators, lawmakers, whatever, were at some point going to be asked about their relationship with SPF and about what they thought about crypto as a result of that. And so what I think giving all those donations actually ended up doing was kind of putting a target on Sam Bankman-Fried and meant now legislators, if they wanted to make it look like they weren't influenced by him, had to go harder on crypto to make it look like, no, his money didn't bias me. Look, at I just proposed the whatever bill that's going to do whatever to the crypto industry. So I think that it's very plausible that giving these donations and trying to ingratiate himself into the DC picture ended up putting a larger target on crypto and on Sam Bankman-Fried specifically. What a lovely gift to everyone, especially to himself, we have to say. It's just a massive backfiring, ending up pointing the cannon right at himself. I think you're onto something there. Like, but just by giving the money, force these politicians to think more about this issue. They can't just avoid it because they're personally involved if they took the money. So now they have to do something. And something is more than the nothing that you usually get out of D.C. Exactly. Absolutely. 
So just continuing off of that, you know, the timing of this, definitely it's something that has been discussed for, you know, several years. When is a stable, when is there going to be some type of regulation around stable coins? This is the first asset that seems like it's a little more tangible for people in Congress, you know, to understand. So I guess, how do you expect, you know, some of the responses or, you know, the coming months um, following the draft of this bill, you know, what do you expect to actually be done with this? And do you think that people in power can actually understand this side of crypto? And I have to say that from my personal experience as a reporter covering legislators attempting to tackle the crypto issue, I remember there was a time in early 2021 where I was covering a bill in the West Virginia State House that had to do with crime. There was a little subsection that had to do with cryptocurrencies that was really focused on making it a misdemeanor to issue stable coins in the state without having the permission from, I guess, the money transmitter authority to do so. But the wording of this bill was so confusing, I emailed the state legislators on the eve of its passage saying, uh, I don't understand the wording that you used here. And I think it might actually mean that you're banning Bitcoin. Is that your intended thing? And they responded to me saying, good, good day, sir. Thank you so much for bringing this to our attention. Uh, we will address your concerns immediately. And indeed, they held a vote before the big vote to scrap entirely the poorly worded cryptocurrency banning section because no one had really thought about what the wording meant. And the bigger bill ultimately failed. But it wasn't very encouraging to me that as a reporter, I just jumped in the last second uh, with a, an, an innocuous question of, I don't understand what this means. And they responded with, well, wait, we don't either. Let's just get rid of it and move on. Like, thank you. So and they treated me as a constituent, not as a reporter, which put me in a weird Hunter S. Thompsonian position without the adrenal glands to go along with it, which is never good. But I just have to hope that the bills that make their way through Congress will get more attention than those state bills. And they probably will. These things are picked apart with a fine-tooth comb. Everyone has something to say about every single comma and period and capitalization. So just hope, hopefully we uh, have clarity on what it is. And I imagine we will. If nothing else, over the last several years, cryptocurrency companies have invested in expanding their um, policy and lobbying operations in D.C., and so I think that there will certainly be cryptocurrency groups analyzing this bill as it goes through. Awesome. So, Bennett, I want to switch gears a little bit, and I want to ask you about your recent deep dive into Andreessen Horowitz's crypto investment wing, A16Z. I found your newsletter fascinating. First of all, I cover mainly Web3 and NFTs at Coindesk, so I'm very familiar with the Yuga Labs and Dookie Dash and all of these crazy initiatives from this NFT behemoth in the space. So, yeah, I'm just I want to hear more. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in my last newsletter piece for Protos, I did decide to write about A16Z portfolio and dedicated several paragraphs to Yuga Labs because I find Yuga Labs and their various investments and creations endlessly fascinating. And we started to see them move a little bit more into the mainstream, right? Universal Records, I think, announced they were going to be doing a Bored Ape band. Seth Green announced that he was doing a Bored Ape TV show. Two Chains produced an NFT series called The Red Ape Family, starring a variety of board apes and other NFTs. And like, what was so frustrating for me about the dynamics there is they described it as like, this was going to be the next model of bottom-up entertainment creation, that there was going to be this massive community creating basically their own Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
and it wasn't going to be driven by a single top-down company. But of course, A16Z Investment was in the top-down company. They invested in Yuga Labs, the company behind it. And like, when I went to try to look at what Yuga was doing, their actual NFT mints have done reasonably well, right? They've made money on other deeds. They've made money on the kennels and the serums and the everything else. But the projects beyond that were often not seeming to strike a chord in their own community. I have repeatedly joked in that newsletter and on my Twitter about they have a, a Board Ape Yacht Club lo-fi hip-hop stream on their YouTube page, and it is very often for there to be zero people in there listening to that. Often when I check, I'm the only one. And now for the last, like, 40 hours, it's been running without audio, and they seem to not realize that their lo-fi hip-hop stream has no lo-fi hip-hop on it and hasn't for more than a day. And then many of the more bottom-up initiatives that were supposed to be the reason this was valuable have not done that great. The previously mentioned Red 8 family, the videos are just awful, humorless, badly directed, not worth watching. And like Seth Green's TV show never ended up happening. I really struggled to feel like there was an interested community and fandom in the apes and in Yuga beyond the fact that they were making money and they said good morning. In your opinion, there's really not much of the community utility, so to speak, with Bored Apes. It's really just become, or maybe it always was this way, this status symbol NFT that hasn't really delivered on any of its other promises. I don't know that there were that many other promises. Like going back to like the mint itself of Bored Ape, that was what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a picture of an ape with these various traits you could trade. I can I can feel the it's also tiresome meme manifesting from your little box right now. <laughs> Perhaps. Like it it's I, I think part of what makes me frustrated is not like the actual NFTs for the board apes themselves or the people who are interested in them. It was like the hype that was generated around Yuga Labs and like the work A16Z was doing to perpetuate that hype and how so many of the things driven by that seemed disconnected from like the actual products that were important. So just to point out to our readers and listeners, I mean, A16Z is not just any old uh, company. It's sort of the royalty of Silicon Valley venture capital companies, and they have a huge crypto portfolio. And in this newsletter, you really uh, took them to task uh, over their entire portfolio. Uh, but just to push back on that a little bit, I mean, VCs never actually say all of our investments are going to work, do they? I mean, they, they expect like three quarters of them to to fail and they make money from the other quarter. So that's kind of baked into the principle here. So to kind of look at the whole portfolio and kind of expect them all to be success and hold them to that standard seems a little bit unfair somehow. And I just want to kind of make a larger point on the sort of back of that, and which is more of a personal take, which is that I think, you know, critics of crypto such as yourself often make very good points pointing out the kind of problems with crypto. But, uh, you know, when that criticism goes so far as to kind of brush off an entire industry as somehow suspect, I think that becomes a problem. And we kind of get into the kind of maximalist uh, argument negative to crypto in the same way that maximalists on the other side are much too sort of Pandlossian about like the success and the potential of crypto. So a maximalist minimalist argument. <laughs> so do you think, uh, you know, the actual reality here, just like the A16Z portfolio is, is somewhere in the middle, right? You know, is that some of these things will work out just like some of the things in crypto will work out and some of the things uh, will not work out. But just to sort of paint off the whole portfolio or paint off the whole of crypto as being suspect uh, seems a bit sort of reductive. Well, it, I don't think it was my intention to paint off all of crypto as being something worth dismissing. And I've gone over before how I think perhaps cryptocurrency is uniquely good 
at very specific things. I think cryptocurrency is designed and is uniquely good for censorship resistance and very little else. And so my frustration with entities like A16Z is that so much of their activity surrounding cryptocurrency, surrounding blockchains in general, is focused on activities that blockchains and cryptocurrency are not uniquely better at and often are worse at. So that would include NFTs? I think most cases of NFTs fall into that. Broadly, I'm just not that interested in NFTs. I, I take the piss out of Yuga because they're so massive and because they represent kind of this symbol of the thing. NFTs themselves, I, I don't really, frankly, care about them in much the same way I don't care about like baseball collecting cards, right? If people want to put images on things and sell them to each other, who cares? So I have a follow-up question from that. So NFTs really started off as a speculative investment, and then they sort of transitioned into becoming this type of digital collectible. So in the form of board apes, in the form of whether it be digital art, all these different types of collections, doodles, you name it. There are so many different types of these digital collectibles that people could have, like a baseball card. But recently in NFTs, the conversation has really switched towards utility. Does your opinion on NFTs change in that sense, you know, with this actual utility that's not doesn't really have anything to do with this token being a collectible at all. Well, I think there's kind of like a few things there. Like, I, I think the history of NFTs, if you're tracing it back, you're going to go back to like counterparty on Bitcoin, right? And I think that leans more into like collectibles or digital art and stuff like that. And then kind of the first phase on Ethereum I see is like CryptoKitties, which certainly had this very much speculative underpinning, but still was at least kind of this novel game with these somewhat novel mechanics. And it was only after that, really, with first CryptoPunks and then some of the later ones, where we started to see more of like the multi-thousand collections of images minted and sold together was really after that. Things like NFT tickets, it's people trying to be able to get around the Ticketmaster monopoly so that they can own the secondary sales and they can own the initial sales, too. You run into many of the same problems you would with any other NFT scheme, though, right? Like if you want to actually collect the royalties, then you need to make sure that you are enforcing it against contracts which are actually going to pay you the royalties, and so you're effectively locking it down. And its advantage as an NFT is only insofar as it gives you an excuse to avoid a live nation. Similarly, when you're talking about the utility ones, I am not a lawyer, but I think that many of the NFT projects that are promising improvements, products, returns, and especially the ones who are um, creating NFTs that represent ownership in like a DAO that also then invests and trades NFTs should have very good lawyers they're talking to in every step of the process. I think it is unlikely, in my personal opinion, that the SEC would find most NFTs to ever be securities. But I think the projects that are promising a whole large roadmap, promising returns, promising cash flow from the protocol, in some cases I've seen, are taking on a whole bunch of legal risks. Oh, I, I do love be a good NFT that promises cash flow. That's always that's <laughs> always my favorite. It's just, just don't don't do that. Okay. It's not hard. It's really not hard to pretend no. to be not be a security. That actually is really hard to pretend to not be a security. But it's really easy to not take that really eat I don't even, I'm, I'm over it. I'm just, <laughs> all right. Anyway, um, when back in the happies mode, Danny, and I wanted to jump into the meta zone for a second, not the metaverse, but the meta zone and talk about podcasts on this podcast with you, fellow podcaster. 
Uh, your podcast, which is bigger than our podcast, but that will change soon, uh, <laughs> has passed 100 episodes. I wanted to know, what's been your favorite topic of discussion on that show so far? Like, What really has stood out to you as the zenith of crypto podcasting? I don't know if I have a single thing like that I can point to. You love all your children? Or? <laughs> we We never expected to have a podcast like this. Our original plan was to do two or three episodes just talking about what we knew about Tether at the time. And then we were going to stop and not do it again. And then people kept asking for more episodes and we kept making more episodes. And now we're here. I've gotten to meet some really incredible people through the process of doing the podcast. I got to have on legendary short seller Jim Chanos. Most recently, and probably the like single episode I'm most proud of, we got to have on um, Cynthia Cooper who was vice president of internal audit at WorldCom and was the like whistleblower who exposed like the $11 billion accounting fraud at WorldCom. So that's like the single episode I'm most proud of. But broadly, I'm glad that we've gotten to kind of cover the developing situation in El Salvador and talk about some of these other like important issues that have come up and are connected to cryptocurrency. Thank you so much for joining us on Carpet Consensus. I just want to say Everyone, make sure to check out Bennett's panel at our Consensus Festival in Austin. He will be talking about how to spot a scam, a very important topic from a very influential figure in this corner of the crypto world. So once again, thank you, Bennett. Thank you. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code CARPE to get 15% off your pass. Visit coindesk.com consensus or check the link in the show notes. All right, we're going to get to my favorite part of the podcast now, which is Danny's Dungeon. Ooh. Danny? We've rappelled right into the dungeon today for a quick one just to talk about Discord, which is in the news in a big way for national security purposes. But more importantly for the crypto world, Discord is the place where things happen with DAOs, where things happen with DEXs. This is the place where the community comes together to yell at the project managers and tell them how they're doing things wrong, sometimes right, not that often. I've been doing a lot of DAO reporting in recent weeks, integrating myself with these communities, and I've seen some honestly pretty interesting examples of moments where communities and project managers are clashing, but ultimately use these tools such as Discord to come together and create a, a solution. In some cases, that involves liquidating a project's treasury. Uh, in other cases, it means changing a vote or reholding a vote to better address the, the questions that a community has. So, Cam, I wonder, in the NFT world, do discords play as big a role as they do in the DAO world? You know, it's a good question. A lot of NFT projects do have discords, not even just NFTs, other Web3 projects in the ecosystem. But there's really this question, do they need them? You know, a lot of people in NFT projects really just congregate on Twitter. I think for DAOs, it's almost essential. And the reason is because it's a place where you can schedule community calls, which are very important parts of not only covering DAOs, but just being an active member of the community. 
In addition, being able to have a more direct line of contact between this project that you're working on as well as, you know, the people who are involved in it. It's not really something that I use day to day. Also, I personally hate Discord. Um, I don't know how to use it. I never will. And I maybe I'll learn it someday. Kim, you're younger than I am. I, yes, oh I understand. Goodness. I know how to use Discord. I just don't like it. That awful panging when you get a message. It's like, that's true. I have to like weirdly jerry rig my computer when we're doing this show to just to nullify those pings from Discord because I'm in 50 Discords and I get pinged all the time. Yeah, it'd it be like that. It, it really do be like that. Ben, are, how are you in your Discord skills? Um, I... I irregularly i think why do you think discord is the sort of central hub for uh dow conversations danny it's it's in a name i think the name is discord right what does discord mean discord means disagreement it really is the opposite of consensus which you should all come to but discord means things that are in tension and there's nothing in a dow if not a lot of tension and beyond just a name though discord is built basically as a way to have slack for gamer boys and it's a gamer thing it's a gamer gamer thing thing. it's a gamer thing it's it's like a weird let's get things done but also have this social media platform and it does from a organizational standpoint have a lot of ways to help people organize their thoughts and their ideas around certain topics so there's a very real structural reason that i think discord is well purposed for running or attempting to run a dao I mean, in other cases, I'm just thinking that I have seen it in NFT projects where there are token-gated discords and you're able to prove ownership by linking your wallet to a discord server and access this community where you can talk to other holders, you can learn about updates, you can voice your concerns. You know, it's something that works as a nice tool. Granted, I was able to use it better. And for me personally, the thing that I'm watching for in DAO's and their discords going forward is this trend of liquidating assets. I saw one DAO called Rook take this drastic measure of making the token no longer relevant to the DAO's operations, basically liquidating the DAO itself by returning treasury money right to token holders. And I think that there are reasons to believe that more DAOs in their discords are going to go down this path. So I'm looking out for that trend. Where are the millions of dollars going? Maybe it's right back to the community. It's going to be on Discord, though, so that's where I'm looking. All right, we're going to go to Cam's corner now. Cameron? Remember you asked me last week when we were recording if I personally knew an ape holder? Mm -hmm. Did you find one? Well, now I do. Now I do. Who is it? Okay, I'll set the scene. You ready? It's Thursday night, and... It's about 85 degrees, which is really uncharacteristic for April. And you enter the DL, this bar in the Lower East Side, and it's a degen party. You spot one guy with a bored ape shirt and find out his name's Adam Clegg and he works at this company, Lithos. And you really start talking about what's been going on in the bored ape community. And you talk about something that happened earlier that day, which was the slide of the floor price of bored apes to five-month lows of 55.6 ETH, which at the time was $116,000. What caused it was this bored ape whale. Franklin is bored, is his Twitter handle name. He used to have in his bio, I have 69 apes. And over the past several days, he's even sold more since this happened. Franklin has had to liquidate about 37 apes 
because of liquidity issues, and he later shared on Twitter that he was scammed out of 2,000 ETH due to a, quote, casino gambling Ponzi, unquote, and just goes to show when one whale sells off such a large amount of ape holdings. This was in the millions of dollars, by the way. You know, I was talking with Adam about how, you know, how, how NFTs really react to such an immature market. Yeah, with when you have so few apes and they cost so much, the pool of people who are willing to buy them is rather small. And what we see here with Franklin getting rid of his, his apes, he had to dump and he had to get the money and he had to get the money fast. But the interest just wasn't there to buy at the prices he was looking for. And so that's just what happens, right? We saw the asset slide in value because no one actually wanted to pay that much money for these apes. For real. It's really fascinating how we talk about consistently how popular they are, but then when the time comes for people actually ready to buy them, they're not going to pay these amounts that they have previously sold for before. I mean, I'm I'm highly biased toward the one NFT project that I'm involved in, Disclosure, but I, I just loaded up over the weekend on my LinkStyle NFTs for the, the niche utility that these things provide. So you can play golf. That's the utility. <laughs> so I can play golf. That's exactly why. I like LinkStyle too. Where are they going to be playing golf? Well, they will be playing golf in Austin, Texas, but um, none of you are invited. I can actually, I know a guy. I am the guy. I can get you invited if you'd like. It's okay. I don't know how to play golf. Neither do I. That's the magic of it, right? Really? I just, wow. I just I paid thousands that. of dollars to enhance my membership in this NFT collective, and I'm not even that good at golf. In fact, I'm terrible at golf. I'm god-awful. I'm an embarrassment. I can swing the club. It's not pretty, but... I want to get better at golf. And for me, this is an opportunity to force myself into that endeavor. And it's also coming with a community that I actually am kind of close with. So to me, it's worth it. An ape, though, is not. You're going to do great. With all that NFT drama, we'll see what happens next week. But next week, it's very exciting. It's consensus, and we're going to be recording some episodes live in person. So if you see us around, if you're a Carpy, which is the unofficial name of our fan club, please come say hi to us. We don't bite. We're very friendly, I think. But catch us at a good time, and we'd love to talk to you. And make sure that you tune in as we are releasing episodes if you don't end up making it to Austin. But thank you so much for tuning in, and we can't wait for next week. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Danny. Catch you guys in Austin. Bye. Bye. Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz, and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.